and welcome back to New Books and Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Shira Cohn, and we've got a great show for you today. I'm here with Lynn Davidman, the Robert M. Barron Distinguished Professor of Modern Jewish Studies at the University of Kansas. She's joining me to discuss her new book, Becoming Unorthodox, Stories of Ex-Hasidic Jews, published in 2015 by Oxford University Press. Lynn, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. It's wonderful having you here. Um, I wanted to start by asking you, I noticed in your book that you discussed that while you didn't grow up within a Hasidic community, you share that you too went through a process of becoming unorthodox. And can you share some of your personal history and how this led to the writing of this book? Absolutely. Um, I grew up in modern orthodox and my mom died when I was 13. And my father had never intended to raise his kids. That was my mom's job and he was pretty angry. His wife was beautiful. She died at age 37. And he really didn't want to be raising kids. And so for him, the religion became a matter of power. And I had two brothers, so I was the only female in an orthodox patriarchal household with two brothers, none of whom had a clue what it meant to be a 13-year-old girl. I was kind of beginning to be marginalized, like they'd all go to shul Friday night together, and I was home alone. And that used to be special time with my mom. But it was empty time for me in many levels of that. And my father got angry for I once dated a non-Orthodox man. He came to the house without the yarmulke. And my father blew up. And then he started bringing around a non-Orthodox woman to the house for every Shabbat because he was going to train her to be Orthodox. And internally, I was incensed what hypocrisy that was. And um, she would sleep in my room with me on a high-rise bed. So we wouldn't think they were sharing a room. But of course, on Saturday night, they'd leave to go to Atlantic City. And I certainly didn't think they got two rooms in Atlantic City. I was old enough by then. And one Friday, she showed up with her hair bleached blonde, which was what my mom had. And I thought, she has succumbed. She's gone over. And that was very difficult for me. And by that time, I was in college. I was at Barnard. I had wanted to go out of town for college, and my father kept repeating this trope. All my children live with me until they're married. The family must be together. And it became apparent to me the family was what he wanted to define it was, it as. And the family had no consideration if anyone in it had different needs. And so when she came by that Shabbat with her bleached blonde hair, I went into a pretty bad depression. And I started talking to my dad, saying, I need to go live in the dorms. I spoke to Happy Luxstein from Ramaz. I went to have him counsel me. It was like in some way I needed the health share to move on out. And he did And he called my dad. And so I got a room at Barnum, 
They were very nice to me. I was a good student. I got to meet the president of the University College. They got me a dorm room for the middle of the year. They helped me find a job so I could make my way through Barnard. And I guess that was December of 73 that I moved out. And it was during winter break. And I was so nervous I wouldn't have the guts to leave because it had been drummed into me. And I had I didn't have a suitcase, so I had all my clothes packed into black garbage bags. And a local friend of mine in Forest Hills, her parents were nice enough to let me keep my garbage bags in their living room. And then I called a cousin of mine, a young married cousin who was cool. And I said, I need somewhere to stay till the dorms open. He said, of course, come on. So I stayed with him and his then wife. And when the dorms opened, there I went. And that was the beginning of the process of you, over time, really leaving that modern Orthodox community. That was in some ways the final step, leaving, because I had started questioning from the moment my mom died. She had gone to 50 rebbies, had gotten blessings, had gotten dollar bills. And every time they'd come back, they'd say, the Rebbe gave her a blessing. Everything will be okay. Well, obviously it wasn't okay. She died at home. I'll vividly forever remember my dad running down the stairs calling for my brother to call the oncologist. Mom's dead! And at that moment, I started questioning. I said, all these rabbis say she'll be okay. Well, they're mistaken. <laughs> they're obviously mistaken. And if they're mistaken about this, I bet there's other things they're mistaken about. So it was during my high school years, although I was going to an Orthodox day school, I started to rebel. And I, like the people in my book, went through a sequence of stages. So there was my first transgression. I was at Ramaz. Two guys who were seniors took me around the corner to Leo's and ordered me a cheeseburger. And I kind of waited to see if I'd be struck down. And nothing happened, and it tasted pretty good. So they have first experiments like that. They go somewhere that, in other people's terms, is public, a restaurant, but it's private for them because no one in their community will see them. So they go to dance clubs, they go to bars, they sneak into libraries, the men, and read Kant and Hegel and Relativity. and So they break the rules some. And all of them have a few experiences when they're young that make them doubt. And I want to ask you about that, but first I'm actually even wondering if you can tell us about, you mentioned that you were raised mono-Orthodox, but you're studying in this book those who identified with the Hasidic community. And who are the Hasidim and why is their religion and why is community so important? Okay. I grew up mono-Orthodox, but the consequences for me of leaving that I was disowned and disinherited. And that was not a typical modern Orthodox story. I figured that narrative would be more likely to be told by Hasidim because they live in enclave communities in which they interact face-to-face, in which everybody knows each other. So if you're a girl, you dare not go out of the house with bobby socks because a neighbor will tell your parents. And so all of them had had some experience when they were young that led them to question. And there's four categories I discerned. 
One, a non-normative family structure. I had a non-normative family structure. Another was meeting secular cousins. Some of their moms had come into orthodoxy or their dads and wanted to keep touch with their siblings and their nieces and nephews. So these Hasidim would go and visit these secular relatives. And as one of them said, they were having such a good life. They went skiing. They went water skiing. And God wasn't punishing them. I had two stories about cousins. So that's another one. Another is exposure to non-conforming ideas. And the other is abuse. And when you talk about the um, exposure to non-conforming ideas, you mentioned the library as the site of this. Can you say a little bit more about how this place that a lot of people take for granted becomes this very important site? Sure. And bookstores. Mm-hmm. Um, most of them are not allowed to go to libraries. The one woman I'm thinking of who to the library became a big thing. Her mother hadn't been born orthodox, so she was from one of these split parent situations. So her mom let her go to the library, and she discovered the feminine mystique, and she discovered all the books, and she became a real angry feminist, and that contributed to her leaving. Also, she saw her mom's life, and she said, I don't want any part of this. She's a kitchen schlep. And when I was young, I had a sense I didn't want my mother's life. And I decided when I was really young, I wanted to be a doctor, because that was a profession that was really respected in my family, and it would never land me in my mom's role. By the time I got to college, I realized I had no interest in or talent for science. So there went the doctor idea. So um, after I did that first transgression and after the people I studied, oh, let me go back to Hasidism and who Hasidim are. So they are people who take, they started in Eastern Europe during a time when pogroms and Jews were being treated very badly in Eastern Europe. And there was a founder of a movement who decided that instead of only valuing the rabbis who get to God through Talmud study, most Polish and other Eastern European Jews were illiterate. So he decided he would teach them to reach God through Hitler Havut, through ecstatic or mystical practices. And it spread through Europe like wildfire. And after the war, some of these dynasties that remained from Eastern Europe came over to this country, and they founded their dynasties here. And, and it's the post-war story, you mean? Yes, mm-hmm. very much so. So there was a Satmar branch in... Lubavitchers were in Crown Heights, Satmars were in Williamsburg. They were enemies with each other. But the bottom line is each community lived in a very enclosed neighborhood in which they wouldn't get very much exposure to anything from the secular world. And they were told that the Goyim were dangerous, that the Goyim did not have holy souls, they only had animal souls. And they were told that God would punish them if they deviated that they would hurt their siblings' marriage chances if they deviated, that they might lose their families. So they were brought up in an enclave in which the means of enforcing conformity were right at hand every minute. 
because that's all you run into were people from your community. And so the stakes are very high for those who go through this process of unbecoming. And you also say that this is very much tied up within this idea of what you call embodiment, embodied ritual. So I'm wondering if you can say a bit about what you mean by embodied experience and how this relates to those who become disillusioned with the Hasidic lifestyle. In contrast, say, to evangelical Christianity, where the great emphasis is on faith, and they talk about it as a faith tradition. Judaism is much less a faith tradition than a religion of praxis, of rituals. And Orthodox Jews, and even more so Haredim, who take additional rules upon themselves, lest they get they have to stay further away and build more and more fences, lest they break a scriptural law. And so um, they had rituals that in, engaged them the whole day long. They woke, woke up, walked three steps, no further, had a little basin with a two-handled cup, and they poured water over their hands in a ritualistic way, in a certain order, with a blessing. They went to the bathroom, they had a blessing for after that. Then they had prayers, then they ate breakfast. And depending on whether a fruit was from Israel or not, that was the order of the blessings. They were restrained in what they could eat. They were restrained in their very comportment. So how they carried themselves, how they could dress. The men were brought up to walk down the street like that if they were out of their neighborhood. Saying shielding their eyes. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. So they wouldn't see anything that they shouldn't be seeing unless they get tempted. And the women were taught to wear mutely colored clothing and to not stand out, to not call attention to themselves. And this is what they called sniut, which literally means modesty. And how do they derive that women are supposed to be modest in such a way that means they can't show their elbows or their collarbones? Well, there's a verse in the Hebrew scriptures that says, the glory of the daughter of the king is inward. And out of that one sentence, they get these stringent boundaries around women's behavior. And some of the women, as they were getting older, lost the opportunity to sit with their father in shul, which was where all the action happened, and they got sent home to be with their moms to prepare Shabbat lunch. And the embodied ritual is that it's so ingrained from the moment you're born, this whole daily routine, and how you walk down the street, how you're allowed to dress, Men could wear only white shirts and black pants. Women had covered elbows, covered collarbones, dresses below their knee. And then each group had subtle variations, black stockings, beige stockings with seams. And the ones who were born know how to recognize each group through these clothing variations. And I began to feel that these embodied practices, and they were embodied because they became automatic. They were taken for granted. They were internalized so deeply. So one time when I was working on this book, I saw my nephew, who's monitoring the box, walk through the door post his room, or through the walking 
walking through the house, and every time he went through a door, he reached his hand out as if to kiss the Mrs. Lemon, put put the hand that was raised to his mouth. And I thought, is he really thinking of the prayer that's in the mezuzah, our Lord is God, our Lord is one? No, this is a rote ritual practice that's embodied. And then I started to hear that. Once I thought about my nephew, I started to realize that all these narratives were about that. And first transgressions were changing bodily things, what you ate, how you dressed, how you comported yourself, where you went. So one guy told me he went to dancing clubs with his guys with the face. And they felt, he felt that everyone was staring at them rather than the dancing women. And so he started to put his pace behind his ears. And his friends said, Ha ha, you're not even Jewish, you don't have your pace. Which says to me how strongly they identify their approach to Judaism with Judaism, period. Without peyote, he couldn't be a Jew. So when you're talking about these first transgressions, as you mentioned, did the men and women that you spoke to did you see a gendered division in terms of the types of first transgressions that women went through versus those of men, or was it really all over the place depending on the individual in terms of what that first transgression was? It wasn't divided along strict gender lines at all. But the men were more likely to go find philosophy books in a library, in a university library. I mean, living in New York, once you get to Manhattan, bookstores, and so they, you know, they've been trained to have acute minds for studying Talmud. So they got enchanted with Kant and Hegel and Einstein, and that's all about relativity. And so that gave them a, a leg from which to ask questions. Some of the women did that for reading as well. One woman told me that in her high school she was shocked. They gave them a doll's house to read probably not understanding what that was really about. So that was her takeoff. Um, both genders made transgressions, first transgressions having to do with how they appear. So guys would take off their yarmulkes and or go to dancing clubs. Women would wear pants under their skirts go to the neighborhood bar on a Friday night, sneaking out of their parents' house, take off the skirt, hide it behind the corner of the bar, go in and have a drink. And this one woman, I said to her, because when I grew up, I didn't know about drinking. And I said, what did you order? She said, a martini. I said, a martini? How did you ever hear about a martini? She said, well, I used to sneak out to go to the movies. And that's who I wanted to be. Lauren Bacall, Audrey Hepburn. And they all drank martini. So she broke so many rules at once. It was Friday night. She carried money. She wore pants under her skirt. She went into a bar. She paid for her drink. So some of them were like that, multiple at once. And so there were variations, but typically it was something they stopped doing, like eating kosher, which was across gender lines. No women went to dancing clubs. Um, some women discovered philosophy. 
Some women had really serious gendered critiques, and so their transgressions were defying that role somehow, like appearing with a halter tuck far away from their houses. And I call this private public space because it's really public, but it's private to them because no one in their community can see them. So just like that restaurant you mentioned earlier, exactly. where that it's public to everyone, but for them, no one in their community is going to be walking by. Absolutely. No one in my community would have walked by. And you say that this point of first transgression for those who end up leaving leads to sort of a liminal period that you call passing. Yes. What happens during this period? How does it go from these isolated incidents to the next step towards leaving the Hasidic community? Good question. Well, they transgress once. They're all expecting God to strike them down. And lo and behold, nothing happens. And they're like, oh, I liked that dancing club. I'm going to go back. And they start going back all the time. And they hook up with the DJ girls. And this becomes the life they want. Or this woman who knew about the martinis, she would keep going to Manhattan, seeing a freedom that she craved. So she would keep doing that. And what they found, so in short, what they found was they weren't punished as they'd been brought up with the threat of. And they liked these new activities. So they wanted to keep doing them. And so they were torn. Many by then didn't believe. Some still did. Or some of the men still put on killing, although they didn't believe. But they couldn't let go of that ritual because they had it so deeply ingrained they must do this every day. But eventually, they keep questioning. This one guy went out on a Friday night and he had unkosher chicken with some friends. He said, you know what? It tasted just like my parents' Friday night chicken at dinner. And so you start to see that nothing really is bad. So you want to keep transgressing. On the other hand, you can't leave. You don't have the resources. You don't have the education. You don't have the skills that will help you get a job. Most of them don't have high school equivalent degrees at all, especially the men. And so it's incredibly hard to leave. You've been taught that you're going to go to the outside world where all the going will treat you badly and hurt you. You've been taught that God will strike you down. You've been taught you might lose your family and community. You've been taught you'll hurt your siblings' marriage chances. And do I want to do this for myself if that's going to hurt my sister? So there's a lot holding them back. So they're moving between these worlds, liking what they're tasting and seeing and being. But then they don't have the wherewithal to leave. So that's that stage of passing. And you're right, it's a liminal stage. They no longer want to be in the community, and they don't yet see a path out. Did you see any kind of specific setbacks for those during this period of passing and that they would try, they're moving towards leaving, but something would happen that would maybe pull them back in more? They just couldn't feel like they could move past that passing stage at a certain point? No, none transgressed and moved back. But some lost belief and then tried to regain it. Mm. And that was before they were transgression. 
So one guy told me, I wanted to believe. Here are all these people who are older than me, smarter than me, and they all believed. And I so badly wanted to believe. I heard that from a few people. So they're torn up inside. They can't believe what they want to believe. So how can they transgress? But eventually, it's like, well, if I'm not believing, why am I living this way? And so one guy told me, that he and they manipulated their clothing between the outside world and inside and other aspects during passing you mean yes Mm -hmm. and other aspects of the comportment so one man told me he would go out into the world and take off his yarmulke and over time he started to gauge how close he could get to his community before he put back on his yarmulke and that is really passing And eventually, the passing produces an enormous amount of cognitive dissonance and a sense of confusion about identity that goes very deep. Am I this woman I was brought up to be? Am I this man? Well, no. But am I this secular fry person, free person? Not quite either. So the cognitive dissonance, really. And I guess my interview basis is biased because I only interview people who left. Mm. So there might be people who at that stage were going back and said, ah, and went back to their communities. But I advertised for people who had left. And once they leave, I mean, and again, you didn't necessarily talk to those who really tried to go back and fully integrate into the community, but there's a point of rupture, it seems. And that's also an embodied experience, you say. Yes, it is. You're right inside between the self you were brought up to be and the new identity you were taking on. And this is another place embodiment comes in. I mean, obviously, they're manipulating clothing, they're manipulating comportment. But as they start to change, they have to, and there's a word I made up because there was no such word, they have to disinscribe those automatic taken-for-granted habits as they learn new ones. So it's not disinscribe and reinscribe because they're not taking back, but they have to do new inscriptions. So as soon as a guy shaves his beard off, He's now a man without a beard. And he has a new inscription, which is shaven. And same with women in skirts and stuff. So they newly inscribe bodily habits, like wearing pants instead of a skirt. And several of them, there's one favorite quote in there, talk about how putting on pants was so traumatic for them. And they're afraid to go out of the house with them. And, but eventually, time passes, and you can't stay split in two. And the people I interviewed were those who chose to leave. And those that left, do they retain any aspects of their connection to Hasidism or the Hasidic community? Like, what remained? Jewish identity remained. Caring about being Jewish. No, not for everybody. There was a woman on my panel yesterday who had broken away from Sandra. She'd been an abused wife. And she says she's an atheist. And I'm not observant whatsoever. I read on Pasco, read on Pasco, I know Kippur. But look what I've written two of my three books about. 
Indeed. The past stays with you. You care in some way. In some way. I don't care enough to want to change my life, to go back to being orthodox. Not at all. But there's something in me that identifies very strongly as a Jew. But not the kind of Jew I was brought up to be. But there's so many ways of being Jewish, which is the beauty of it. And even though this isn't exactly about being Jewish, one of the things I really noticed um, in your work that you talked about and labeled is that um, even though you're focusing on those who lead the Hasidic community, you also know that there's some interesting parallels, especially um, to the experience of those within the LGBT community. And I wonder if you can comment a bit about how this might be a larger way to think about community, leaving community. It's a great question. Several of the people I interviewed used the trope coming out. It took me a while, but I finally came out. And it got me thinking, is it simply they use this trope, or are there other similarities? And I had a sabbatical last semester, and the book was done, but I was still intrigued by that trope coming out, coming out. How does it get used across the board in different, by different people who, in one way or another, deviate from the path they've been brought up with. And so I started reading memoirs by gay people about coming out. I started reading collections of memoirs. I started reading sociological and psychological analyses. And I found that the steps I described were very similar. Very similar. Of course, one trend, what they, the GLBT people, it was about sex particularly whereas it wasn't only for the Hasidim. But the same stages of first transgressions, passing, because you're afraid to take on that whole new identity, and you're afraid you'll be, you know, pushed out of your family. One major difference, though, is the Hasidim felt scriptless when they left. They had had an entire life that had been thoroughly scripted, every second of every day. But the people who become gay start to meet some people who are gay, like they know of some place to go. And so they have models of the life they want to lead. And so they gain elements of a script the more they hang out with the people they want to become like. And that's a huge difference. We're running out of time, but I really want to ask you, um, since I so thoroughly enjoyed this work, are you already thinking about a next project? Is there something we should be on the lookout for on the horizon from you? I'm interested in what it means to be Jewish for people who don't practice at all. And at first I was going to call the book Secular Jews. And I started interviewing people when I was at Princeton on the idea of secular Jews. What's it mean to be a secular Jew? But they didn't have narratives to tell about it. It was like, it's my culture, it's my tradition, it's my heritage. And I figured, that's not going to make a book. You need stir and drang and narratives and stories. So then I was talking to my editor about it at Oxford, and she said, but people like Joe Biden, people like Bernie Sanders, they're Jewish. What does that mean to them that they're Jewish? What does it mean to the millions of people who somehow identify as Jews 
observe anything. And I'm intrigued with that question again. You know, how do you be Jewish without practice? Well, I'm looking forward to hearing a lot more about that. Well, thank you. <laughs> Lynn, thank you again for being on the show. Um, check out Becoming Unorthodox, Stories of Ex-Hasidic Jews by Lynn Davidman, published in 2015 by Oxford University Press. Thanks again. Thanks for listening, it's and we'll see exciting. you next time.